the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Let's um, turn a corner here and deal with another topic that um, just seems to continue to raise its ugly head, and that is the erosion of parental rights across the nation. And a lot of it seems to be tied into gender dysphoria, gender identity politics, and eventually saying to parents, hey, we got this. We're the government. We're here to help. Let's get the latest as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, it's always great to have you with us. Um, this time, instead of being California, it's New Jersey. But, uh, you know, whether it's the East Coast, the West Coast, it's a blue state. And a state that apparently doesn't do a real job at excelling at respecting parental rights and protecting kids. Tell us what's going on. Oh, yes. Uh, the uh, attorney general there of New Jersey, Matt uh, Plackton, he filed a, uh, a complaint with the Division of Civil Rights against the Hanover Board of Education. The reason he did that is because this, the Hanover Board of Education uh, wants to have a policy that says something really radical, like uh, parents should have a right to know what's going on with their kids at school especially when it comes to any issue dealing with their mental or emotional well-being, or i.e., uh, if the child is having gender identity confusion or dysphoria, parents should know. Uh, the attorney general says no. Uh, you know, that's not the position of the state. They say He says that school districts uh, cannot be allowed to, to let parents know what's happening to their kids. Uh, they have to create a shadow file that parents don't have access to that's uh, dealing with the children's uh, mental health and emotional health. So we at Pacific Justice Institute, we have decided to file a motion to intervene in this lawsuit on behalf of the Hanover Board of Education and the parents of that school district. Wow. And, you know, it's 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 tragic because I suggest, uh, you know, I, I realize that some will argue, well, if a parent finds out Parents may not respond real well. We know that every parent is not perfect. But to see the manner in which children are being allowed to make life-altering, life-changing decisions with no parent parental um, guidance or oversight whatsoever, and the notion of not even allowing parents to know about what's going on with issues that involve their own children's mental 
emotional or spiritual well-being. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't had this discussion because we would have thought it was a chapter out of A Brave New World or uh, Orwell's 1984. And now here instead, we're living it. You're, you're absolutely right. I like those analogies because we're dealing with an element of extreme government control uh, over children. When they do that, they deprive parents of their God-given fundamental rights over the uh, health, education, welfare, and mental and, and the uh, religious upbringing of their children. And that's not my language. That's actually from the United States Supreme Court in two decisions in the 1920s, Myers v. Nebraska and Pierce v. Society of Sisters. So what this attorney general is doing, he's the one that's deviating substantially from established case law with regards to the fundamental rights of parents. And I'm a little confused. All of a sudden, start going through almost systematically and and targeting districts and school boards, uh, even if they create a policy that is attempting to try and protect parental rights and and provide the best for a child. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand, Counselor, and I realize this is largely a rhetorical question, but I'm trying to understand what makes an adult in that kind of position of power and authority to think that a a a 12-year-old, a 8-year-old is capable of drawing these kinds of conclusions. I mean, you know, m- m- most kids at that age are still struggling with what they want to be when they grow up, let alone to make a life-altering decision today that yeah, I think I was born in the wrong body and therefore I'm going to make a change or I'm going to identify differently or I'm going to show up to school and change clothes and and be presenting myself as a girl when my gender is actually a boy. I mean, the the kind of long-term emotional damage that can happen, particularly when you intentionally leave the parents who are charged with the responsibility of caring and protecting their children, when you intentionally block them out of that process, how is that not considered child abuse by the state? You're absolutely right. And especially what happens to the children, it's absolutely child abuse. You know, if these children, studies show if they're just left alone, those that have uh, truly have this dysphoria, uh, they will actually work it through, and the overwhelming majority of them will no longer have that dysphoria. But the policy of states like New Jersey, New York, California, Oregon, um, it's to actually encourage it. So once a child shows any semblance of possibly identifying as the opposite gender. They want to nurture it. They want to get the opposite sex clothes there at the school for the kids to change into, uh, put them in the opposite uh, locker room, uh, et cetera. And that is only inhibiting their natural probable uh, recovery from this mental condition. Uh, And that's exactly what the uh, psychiatric manual calls it, a, a mental condition um, and uh, it needs to be uh, not encouraged, but, um, but at least at the very least, parents need to be made aware of it. Also, assuming that parents are somehow violent people or dangerous people, that has no precedent whatsoever. Uh, no, parents are the ones the most caring for their kids. We see much more harm coming from the public schools by far. Yeah, well, you know, this is all being generated by the same government that thinks none of us are adult enough to select our own light bulbs. We need the government to tell us that a 8-watt LED is better than a 200-watt incandescent bulb because most adults can't subtract 8 from 200 to come up 
with a 192 watt difference. It's just it's it's the brave new world in which we live. Brad Dacus, thank you for staying on top of this and uh, keeping us posted as to what's transpiring on uh, both coasts related to parental rights. Brad Dacus with the Pacific Justice Institute. Information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A true confession time. Those of you that have been a longtime listener to this program or have read uh, my um, bio workup on the website probably know that I'm a bit of a collector. I have a um, collection of antique vintage radios that span the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that I've been collecting and slowly restoring down through many, many years. It's just kind of a of a hobby. Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I began collecting 78 records and have um, down through the years by visiting quite a number of <laughs> flea markets and garage sales and the like, amassed a pretty good-sized collection there, too. And, you know, after a while, you, you begin to realize that as much as you might uh, enjoy collecting stuff, either because you do it out of a hobby or sometimes you do it because you gives, it gives you a sense of, of emotional security or you just can't throw the stuff out, and then you begin to realize that slowly you're overwhelmed by it all. I guess the question is, as we talk today about this issue of feeling stuffed or overstuffed by stuffed, how do we deal with it all? Um, this can run the gambit of those on the extreme end of the continuum that are um, perhaps potential candidates for the Hoarders TV program to people that maybe don't live under piles of garbage, but they still have so much stuff in their life that they feel completely overwhelmed by it. And it begs the question, are you overwhelmed by life that you become overwhelmed by stuff? Or is it vice versa? We're going to get some wonderful insights today from best-selling author Ruth Sukup. Her new book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. She is the um, founder of livingwellspendingless.com and creator of the Living Well Planner. We'll tell you more about how you can find out uh, details concerning her ministry a little bit later on in tonight's program. And uh, meanwhile, Ruth, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about this issue. I've, I've had a bit of experience in dealing with this of recent times um, with family members that have passed away. And um, yes. as is typical, you have to come in and become the cleanup party. And um, it's um, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes when you're going through years of things that have been collected, some stuff very lovingly, other things that seem to be, from your perspective, kept for no good potential reason. And of course, as, as we try to figure out why we're so attached to stuff as it is, uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has to do with just the, the culture of materialism that we have in the world today. I think it does have a lot to do with the culture of materialism. I think we are inundated with messages every time we turn around to saying, you know, buy more, buy more, get this. This is going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. This is the thing that's going to make you more efficient. This is the thing that's going to get you organized. And we buy into every single message, and, and sometimes not even every single message, but we buy into some of the messages, and that's enough because there's so much, and it's so pervasive, and it ends up filling our life, and everything we think is going to make our life simpler actually only serves to complicate everything. 
And, uh, you know, some of this begs the, the, the age-old uh, which came first, chicken or egg question. Is it a sense of people who become so overwhelmed by life that they eventually become overwhelmed by stuff? There's things going on, and so it's it's less a matter of having energy to go through, tidy the house, throw things away, things get put off, procrastination creeps in, uh, all of that? Or is it a case where people kind of give up? Because they become so overwhelmed by stuff that it seems as if they they just don't know where to begin. They're not quite certain how all of this happened. They just know that now that they're there, they have no idea how to begin addressing it. Is it either or or what? I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's almost like a a crazy cycle that we find ourselves getting into where one makes the other worse and you, you don't know exactly what started. But they kind of once you're in there, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. Um, and, you know, it's really not just the, the physical clutter and the physical stuff in our life that weighs us down. It's, and for some people, there's, you know, it's sometimes it's the physical clutter and then other times it's the mental clutter. It's the way that we overstuff our schedules. It's the paperwork and the information overload that's just constantly bombarding us. Uh, or it could even be the guilt that we feel. You know, you were talking about when you inherit other people's stuff. We deal with, with that, and that's something that I talk about in the book as well. So there's lots of different ways that it manifests itself, but I think the results are often the same. It's this feeling of overwhelm. Now, in my recent experience in dealing with this with a family member, uh, a part of it, I think it has to do with the byproduct of being a de- Depression-era baby, uh, somebody who went through that period of time that knows what it's like to go without and therefore has a very um, conservative side to them, uh, a fondness of recycling, though things never quite make it all the way to the recyclers. And so, you know, I guess it becomes a way that that some of this can be um, justified. In other words, uh, plastic margarine tubs are saved because they can be recycled and used for food. So if you keep one or two, why not keep 50 or 100? Or uh, toilet paper rolls that can be kept because you can use them as great little holders for extension cords. But then again, how many extension cords do you really practically have? Aluminum foil, well, aluminum foil can be flattened out and reused. Use. And before you know it, it's not just an accumulation of things that are of value, things you want to keep, things that have sentimental value, but then you quickly get overwhelmed by all of this other stuff that, quite frankly, at the end of the day, has no real intrinsic value to it. But your sense of having lived through times of great sacrifice and not having compels you to keep all of this. Yes. Yeah. And that, and you find that a lot in that depression era generation and you know there's I, I there's not necessarily an easy solution for that either because it's almost this mindset that's so ingrained but then what's happening now is that generation is beginning to you know pass on there it's the kids that are inheriting all of this this whole house full of stuff and some of it is is worthwhile and a lot of it is not and having to sift through and deal with that and that only adds to the overwhelm because we already have all of our own stuff and then we get other people's stuff added into the mix as well so it gets, it gets to be this 
crazy, crazy cycle of so much stuff. And what do you do with it? And there's a little bit of justification to this, isn't there? Because let's face it, we have been uh, hit over the head with this message of recycle things, uh, save the planet, conserve. And so therefore, as I found with this one family member, uh, there was great care and effort given to recycling plastic and aluminum and glass and paper and, and stacks and piles and things and, and, and relatively organized. It's just that it never seemed to make it to the recyclers. And before you know it, you get overwhelmed by all of these things that, yes, have some you know use in a recycling environment. But I wonder if some of these messages today don't become a crutch that people can use or pretext that allows them to continue to accumulate because they think someday I'll use it again or I'll recycle it. Well, I think the idea that I might use this someday is definitely one of the big reasons that people hang on to stuff. And there's a lot of guilt that gets attached to stuff. And this is something that I really talk about in, in my book, Unstuffed, where there is there are lots of different types of guilt that get attached to stuff. So some of it is, well, this could be useful and I don't want to throw it away because I might use it someday. There's guilt that gets attached to stuff because it's an unfulfilled goal or an unfulfilled dream. So say you bought some scrapbooking material because you have grand visions of creating this scrapbook of all of your memories and you never got around to it. And then you don't want to get rid of the stuff because if you do, it means that you failed in this idea that you had um, of scrapbooking or you know you don't want to get rid of something because it was a gift or because you spent lots of money on it and so all of these different guilt um, things manifest themselves in different ways but it all ends up resulting in holding on to too much stuff and then that in turn makes us feel guilty because we're you know our lives are cluttered and we feel overwhelmed and we're guilty because we're holding on to this stuff and yet we feel guilty for getting rid of it and so again it gets us into this cycle of not being able to let go but not wanting to hold on to stuff either and the solution for that really is a couple of different things you know for sentimental items we really have to learn how to separate out the memories from the stuff and that's hard isn't it because there's that sense of guilt over gifts or something that's tied into sentimental value, especially if it's a loved one who's passed away. Yes. I, I found myself going through and finding things when my parents passed that uh, under any other circumstances, if somebody had said, do you need this? Do you want this? Does this mean? Nah, not really. Oh, you know, mom gave it to me 10 years ago, but yeah, that can go away. After she passed away, all of a sudden, things that were the most insignificant become of great value because you reason in your mind, well, that's the last time she will ever give that to me, or I know that I'll never receive a gift from her again, and therefore suddenly we assign tremendous emotional value to something that, quite frankly, may be of no value whatsoever. Yes, and that is incredibly difficult, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. We just went through that, um, and I talk about that in the book as well. With my mother-in-law passed away about four years ago, and then my sister-in-law um, tragically passed away about two years ago, and so we inherited both of their, you know, estates and had to had to kind of go through that process twice, just back to back, and it, it was really difficult because you feel like you are throwing away somebody's life when you have to get rid of their stuff, and even though it's it was a lot of it wasn't sentimental necessarily to us, it was sentimental because 
we loved them. And, and I think that's a little bit what you're speaking about. And so we really had to get to this point where we realized that the memories of our loved ones were not the same as their stuff. We had to separate the memory from the stuff and realize that memories and stuff are not the same. And that's really the only way that you can kind of deal with this influx of, of other people's stuff from a sentimental standpoint. We're visiting today with Ruth Sukup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. For a lot of us, this is a difficult issue to deal with. It seems like the older we get, we certainly tend to accumulate lots and lots more stuff. How do we begin to give some order to our lives that will not only um, deal with the issue, but, but ultimately give us the kind of liberty that we're looking for? And I'll give you one hint. When we come back after the break and continue our conversation with Ruth, I'm going to suspect she's going to tell us that the problem here is not a lack of space. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting with New York Times bestselling author Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Ruth, to most of us that are collectors or gatherers of lots of stuff of value and otherwise, uh, the, the typical explanation, at least in our own mind, and perhaps even the justification to others is, it isn't an issue that I have too much stuff. You don't understand, Ruth. It's just that I don't have enough space. I need more closet space. My house isn't big enough. I need to run out to Walmart and go get some storage containers. That will solve my stuff problem. What about that reasoning? Oh, and I am so, so guilty of that mentality. In fact, for years, I shuffled my stuff around thinking, I live in Florida where we don't have a lot of storage space because there are no basements here in Florida. And there, you know, you can't store stuff in the garage or the attic because it's too hot. And so I would complain all the time that, oh, we just don't have enough closet space. There's no place to store anything. And I would buy more containers and more boxes and more bins trying to organize it. And I, I just kept thinking, it, it's just that I don't have the right system. I can't stay organized because I don't have the right system. And it finally, finally occurred to me at some point that my problem wasn't a lack of storage space at all. It was that I just had too much stuff. And every time I was going to Target to buy more organizing containers, I was also buying more stuff. And because, you know, I'd get caught up in the cute pillow or the cute picture frame or the cute candle because everything there is cute. And so it was something that I just had to really realize that my problem wasn't storage space at all. It was it was definitely the fact that I had too much stuff. Now you realize, that, of course, the entire storage space industry out there, everybody that rents these lockers and pods <laughs> and everything else, they're going to be very disappointed to hear this because they have spent decades convincing us that it's not a matter of having too much stuff. It's a matter of not having enough space to put it in. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm sure they'll be doing just fine with the with the rate at which Americans are buying stuff. I don't <laughs> think they have to worry too much. But, you know, it really is in our lives. I think it's such a matter of learning how to stop the flow of stuff that's coming in. And I, I have an acronym that I like to use to help people when they're trying to declutter their lives. Of It's sort of a four-step process, but the acronym is FREE, F-R-E-E. And so the first step is your F step, which is to fight to stop the flow. And until you do that, you really can't 
work on anything else because if you're still all the decluttering and all the purging in the world is not going to help you if you're still going to target every week and buying new things and filling up your home so that's really really the most important element of decluttering is to just actually be very vigilant about not letting any new stuff in that's the first step then second you can start working on ruthlessly purging so that's your r step is that you definitely want to begin getting rid of the things that you don't need. And my criteria for that is anything that is currently useful despite who gave it to you and despite how much it costs. But wait a minute, Ruth, let me interrupt. I I realize that this stack of magazines is five feet tall, but you don't understand there are recipes in there that I need to cut out of there. Or, or, you know, a lot of the, for a guy, a lot of those magazines, you know, popular mechanics and, uh, you know, the latest sporting magazines, you know, I want to be able to keep all of the information about the amazing season that the San Francisco Giants had last year. And so I just need time I'm gonna so this weekend. I'm gonna set aside time and clip out all those articles. Are you really? You're not convinced, are you? <laughs> because everybody who says that, you're right. the The question really is, are you really? Because the answer is no, not really. That's just a pretext to keep it all. Right, and that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, currently useful. Have I have I used this? And I have I looked at these magazines in the last six months or a year and if the answer is no and I can understand that that hanging on to old magazines because I actually do hang on to old magazines not and and I don't look at them that often but I do look at them sometimes and so and I think they're pretty and I have them in my office and I have them stacked and organized so one of the things that's really really important that and I talk about this a lot in the book is creating a vision for your home and that's really important because a lot of times we have this idea of what our home is supposed to look like and what how we're supposed to be organized and how we're supposed to live clutter free and so if we if we read magazines and we look at you know house beautiful or pinterest and we have all these visions in our head of what the ideal is supposed to be so a lot of the things we buy are based on the ideal and not how we actually use our home But at the same time, we all have a different threshold for what we can tolerate in terms of clutter. What is clutter to me might not feel like clutter to you and vice versa. So the first thing that you really, really need to do is is become absolutely clear about what your vision is of your home and how you actually use your home and who you share your home with and how they use your home so that you can set up a standard for kind of what you're going for. Isn't there, though, a lot of justification that takes place, uh, Ruth, when it comes to this whole definition of how you define clutter versus how I define it? And I ask that question going back to a loved one who, if queried and pressed hard enough, might someone admit that, yeah, it's a little bit cluttered and yet difficult to admit clearly Yeah, there's a lot of clutter here. When it's down to a pathway down the hallway, it's clutter. It's hard to, you know, I I know that there are extremes. Somebody says if if there's two file folders on the desk, that's clutter. And others say there could be 20 file folders, stacks of file folders on the desk. But so long as they're all organized, not strewn every which way, and I know what's in each pile, I don't consider it clutter. But I'm talking about those extreme degrees where people justify uh, perhaps not as much to others as they do to themselves, that it really isn't clutter when at the end of the day it is clutter. Well, I think that the criteria needs to be 
what's causing stress. If it if it does not if it honestly does not bother you and you you like things a certain way and it doesn't cause frustration and it doesn't cause stress, then more power to you. Then I think you know you need to understand that. But a lot of times with people and clutter, it is causing stress, and there are things that are are weighing down on you. You know, it might be the stress of not ever being able to find anything, and that is stressful. Not paying bills on time because your your paperwork is completely unorganized, and or it might be that you know you're a, a couple lives together and they have different thresholds, and so they fight a lot about a mess because one. The mess doesn't bother them at all, and the other is is very bothered by it. So when they're when the clutter is causing stress, either in your relationship or in your life or um, in any sort of area, then that's when I think that it becomes problematic. People can have different thresholds, but if there's a threshold that's causing stress, that's where you need to start addressing it. And of course, there's a degree to which uh, the old adage "it takes two to tango." And uh, sometimes we find people are drowning together, aren't they? Where maybe uh, maybe one spouse after a season just gives up because they've not been able to encourage the the clutter collector to break the habit. Oh, absolutely! I think <laughs> you know. I like to say that couples sharpen each other's swords, but it can go the other way too. And sometimes, you know, you you just for the sake of peace, you end up um, one gives in. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Ruth so a couple of guests today. Her book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul, even organizing things like all the paperwork that in life are necessities. How do we deal with that? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the discussion with Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Now, I made mention before the break, Ruth, we have everything from sentimental things like birthday cards, anniversary cards that we wish to keep down through the years. My grandmother had a collection that when she passed away, we discovered went back all the way to Valentine's Day cards in the 1920s. Some amazing stuff and very grateful that she kept all of that. But then we add to that the list of recipes and news magazine articles. And then, of course, you have everything related to income taxes and and legal papers, uh, some people of which keep not only years, decades worth of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've done this show for 25 years plus now. And in the early days, pre-Internet, everything was paper. And everything got filed in filing cabinets. And over the course of many years, I had accumulated a total of four five-drawer vertical file filing cabinets. That's 20 filing cabinet drawers worth of stuff. And it got to the point where we finally realized with the advent of the Internet and the ability to scan papers and save them into a computer that there was no need for all of that anymore, that any of the documents and information and notes and resources that had been accumulated over the course of a decade, two decades, that had all been neatly filed away could actually all be neatly ground up into scrap paper and all of it could be utilized or gained off the Internet. Is that one approach to go electronic when it comes to managing a lot of the information that we want to keep from family photographs to, quite frankly, all the legal paperwork necessary for tax season and the like? Well, actually, you know, the Internet is kind of a double-edged sword because it has improved the the 
amount of paper, I guess, lessened the amount of actual physical paper we have, but it has increased the amount of information that we have coming at us so much that it is just as overwhelming, if not more overwhelming than the actual physical paper that we have piling up on our desk. And I like to say that paper 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 clutter and information clutter, which I kind of view as almost the same thing because the problem is the same. It's not really a clutter problem, but it's a procrastination problem. And what I mean by that is that most of the paper that we get and that comes to us and most of the information that comes to us via email is all requiring our action. So what it's doing is overwhelming us because we're procrastinating to make a decision and we don't want to have to make a decision about all of these things because our brains can't handle that number of decisions all of the time. And so we procrastinate it and and it piles up and then it gets worse. And again, we get into another cycle of craziness because there's so many decisions that have to be made at any given time and there's so many things demanding our attention and demanding our response. If somebody emails me, I'm expected to return their their email and then they email me back and it's this kind of endless cycle of, of need and response that we have to attend to all the time and that becomes very, very overwhelming. I think there was a confession I read in the book <laughs> related to things like keeping emails or keeping voicemail messages for a long time to the point that the box got filled. I, I know several people that have that same habit. <laughs> yeah, I actually I have offered that as a solution because voicemails are another thing. So what I did I was my voicemail box I let it fill up um, about two years ago, and it has been full ever since. So it is impossible to leave me a voicemail, and that has uncomplicated my life in so many ways. It's amazing. I never have to listen to voicemails. I don't. If somebody can't get a hold of me, they try back later, and or they send me a text message, and, and it works out so much better for me. It's just one less thing that I have to check and that I have to listen to and that I have to respond to, and so. You know, I I don't know that that's the best solution, but I think that one of the things that you can do, and this is what goes for paper clutter or email clutter, is create an information filter for yourself. So basically, what that means is that it's it's just a set of internal rules that tells our brain what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And it's some sort of little guideline that we have that our brain can automatically go, oh, this came in here, and so this goes over here. And so it's an if this, then that. And if, if we can set up enough of those easy rules for our brain, then it sifts everything for us, and we don't have to make quite as many decisions, which means we're not quite as, quite as overwhelmed. Is it helpful, too, to come up with a management program, so to speak, in your own mind that helps reduce the stuff before it becomes stuff? And I asked that question because I started doing something many, many years ago. Uh, I located a recycling bin very near the entrance to the house from the garage so that when I come in uh, after work and I go through the mail, there are flyers and circulars and petitions and ads and all of that stuff. I don't give it a chance to get into the house. 
it makes it as far as that front door. If it has a name on it that maybe I think, oh, I don't want this to be just thrown into the trash can, so I'm going to shred it. I'll maybe tear that off. But otherwise, I will tell you this, with great disappointment to all of you out there that send me ads and circulars and flyers in the mail, it never makes it across the threshold because it all stops in the recycling bin at the garage door. Is that a good idea? Nah. That is exactly how an information filter works. You have already set one up without even knowing it. It's your if is if you've got junk mail, it goes straight into the recycling bin, and that's exactly how it works. So when you can set up those type of simple, simple rules, and it, and I mean it has to be simple. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting organized, we think we have to set up these complicated systems and filing systems, and everything has to be color coded and. We overcomplicate the process, and then what happens is we don't follow through on it because it's too complicated to keep up on. It's too complicated for the rest of our family to understand, and it doesn't work. But the simpler you can make the system, the simpler you can make the rule where it becomes so automatic that you don't even think about it, that's when you start to eliminate the overwhelm. Let's talk about some other ideas in terms of eliminating the overwhelm. And, of course, the big question is, how do we even get started? And and I, I've gone through this myself where you, you look at the piles and go, my goodness, it goes from that corner to that corner. I, I Do I begin at the bottom and work my way to the top? Do I start at the top or work my way to the bottom? And, and by the time you've contemplated this for a good five or ten minutes, it's sometimes just easier to say, mm, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow. How do you begin to get the process really started? Well, you know, there's a couple of different things depending on your personality and depending on what you have time for. One of the things I offer in the book is um, a list of quick wins, things that you can do in five minutes or less. And sometimes that's really helpful for people. Once you see a little bit of progress, it helps you um, snowball into more progress. Another thing you can do is do, you know, tackle one area of your home per day and commit to that. And we actually have a challenge um, on my blog, Living While Spending Less, called 31 Days to a Clutter-Free Life, which gives you 31 days of of decluttering projects. But one other suggestion that I offer in the book is what I call the unstuffed weekend challenge. So that is sort of like a quick win on steroids because you set aside an entire weekend starting on Friday evening and going through Sunday evening and you're you plan ahead and you plan your meals ahead so that you've got easy meals. You don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning up and you know, arrange childcare if you've got kids at home or if they're older, you can have them help. But the entire weekend, and I give you an hour-by-hour schedule of where you start and what you do. You set the timer. You do all different activities throughout the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you've made a lot of progress. And and that can give you enough confidence to keep going forward. And I should mention to listeners, there was a complete suggested plan of attack, so to speak, inside the pages of Ruth's new book that will be very helpful in helping you to kind of get that strategy up and running. Before our time winds down here, Ruth, I want you to say a word about the impact of stuff on relationships. And you talk about this, too in the book. Uh, we've certainly heard and, and maybe even directly experienced cases where stuff comes between us and others. Um, uh, sometimes it's a substitute for others. Sometimes maybe it's safer than relationships. Speak to that if you would, please. Well, you know, in the book I do talk a lot about um, decluttering your re- relationships and the importance of decluttering your relationships. And that gets a little bit tricky because we can't unstuff people like we can unstuff 
you know, our clothing that we no longer want. You don't throw people away. And that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, in today's culture with social media and and the Internet, it has sort of cheapened our friendships a lot, I think. And we have very, a very broad, wide range of friendships, and yet they're very shallow. And so I think that it's that's something that's really missing in people's lives, and it, it takes a lot away from our lives when we're not cultivating those deep and meaningful friendships. But we can't be have deep and meaningful friendships with 500 people on Facebook. You have to be real selective, and that's what I what I talk about in the book is about how you kind of focus on those friendships that are really the most meaningful and and make those a priority in your life. It is a great way to get started with some spring cleaning to not only unstuff your your house, but also to declutter your home, mind, and soul. The book's called Unstuffed. It's an easy read and one that I think, um, no matter how much you personally may struggle with this or a loved one does, I think can be an invaluable tool getting that process started. Check it out. The book, newly published by Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also on Ruth's website, livingwellspendingless.com. That's livingwellspendingless.com. And our thanks to Ruth Sokup for being with us. The book, Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.